Hello there, Agora Bible Fellowship Online. We are so glad that you joined us today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Have a few brief announcements before we get into God's Word. The first thing that we wanted to say is that, man, here at ABF, our hope is that everyone has a local body of believers, a local church that they are attached to wherever you live. So our hope and uh, really why we are providing this online online service is if you just want some extra additional teaching throughout the week, yeah, come and dive into God's Word. Or if you're out of town, we hope that you'll enjoy this online service today. A few things to share is the first, we would love to pray for you. If there's anything going on in life, man, prayer works. Prayer matters. Uh, the Lord bends down to listen to us. It's amazing. And we would love to pray for you this week. So what you can do is you can text a prayer request to 97,000. We'll get back to you and we will be sure to be praying for you even this week. Go ahead and text 97,000. We'd love to do that. If you are interested in all the different things that are going on here at ABF in Agora Hills, California, go ahead and check out the website, agorabible.org, or get our app, Church Center app, and uh, lots of things going on over the next few weeks and months. Uh, I'm sure there are whenever you're watching this, uh, so check out the website for more information on that. Lastly, just wanted to say thank you so much for those of you that give. And if you're interested in supporting the ongoing ministries here at ABF, uh, man, be such a huge blessing. You can give on the website under the Give tab or on the app as well. Well, that's it for me. Let's just get into God's Word. Here we go. Well, greetings, online church family. Uh, thanks so much for joining us as we're continuing to work through this uh, book of 1 Corinthians. And we're picking up in uh, chapter 15, where we left off last week in verse 20. You can uh, grab a, a Bible or an app. It's always the best if we're following along this together. And maybe as you're turning there, I'll, I'll share a story I heard this week. It was a story about uh, kind of a history uh, lesson in April of 19, I'm sorry, April of 1888, uh, the front page of a newspaper in France read this. It said, the merchant of death is dead. It was referring to a Swiss chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel, who had invented dynamite and other military explosives. It was pretty uh, uh, big news in that time and for that culture. The only problem with the news is it was incorrect. Alfred was still alive and his brother had actually passed away. So Alfred was left reading these headlines of his obituary on the front cover of a main magazine and he's reading it and it had such impact because obviously there was a negative slant you can tell based on that title there's such impact that moving forward, his life was never the same. He completely changed and redirected the course of his days moving forward, became a, a well-known philanthropist and uh, literally uh, used his remaining days to have a positive impact. In fact, I was reading one of his last acts was leaving a few million dollars to be able to support an annual award that was given for whoever had the best impact or most influence on humanity for that year. You may have heard of it before, the Nobel Peace Prize. 
all started with a headline. You see, sometimes, if we don't realize it, sometimes it's necessary to have a a wake-up call, something that shocks us, that stirs us, that gets our attention in order to redirect the way in which we live. And I believe as we're working through 1 Corinthians, as there's some degree of shock factor in some of the things that Paul says, that he's trying to stir the pot. He's trying to cause that wake-up call for these young Corinthian believers to see their lives redirected, really, in the same manner in in which his was. And as this topic of the resurrection has come up in this section of the letter, this is definitely something that he's hoping will shake them up. When they have their eyes opened and begin to realize, wait a second, If the resurrection is actually true, this changes everything. This this moves the way I see things. This alters the way I move forward and interact with the world in which I'm placed. So I'm excited to to work through this. There's some uh, definitely some uh, harsh statements by Paul, especially later in the chapter. He tells uh, his audience to wake up from your drunken stupor. I think he's trying to cause them to be stirred, to be moved. And really, that's my prayer and my hope for us as well, that there would be an eye-opening moment for us, understanding how the resurrection still impacts us today. Let me pray before we dive into this section. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to gather, to spend time in your word, and for us to have uh, these collision courses with truth. Truth that has the potential to change the lenses in which we see things. God, we ask that you'd be moving, your spirit would be present even in in this time now, that you'd speak to us, that you'd speak to our hearts. God, that this wouldn't just be informational, but it'd be transformational. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to pick up where John left off last week in this explanation. If you remember, he was kind of uh, giving this uh, description of the resurrection. We're saying, man, we are, if it's not true, we're kind of in big trouble. We're stuck in our sins. The good news that he points to in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The first thing that caught my attention is what he says. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, we are not crazy to think that this happened. This is something that was a, a witnessed event. It's a fact in history. It's, a, it's something that literally, as this, he walked through last week, all the different people that had seen and encountered him, in, including an audience of over 500 people when he's writing this, many of those people still being alive. Then he goes on to explain what this event means for them and obviously for us uh, in association. Paul refers to uh, Jesus as the first fruits. Now, if you think about that statement, first fruits, you realize when you do some degree of study in God's word, Jesus is not the very first to be raised from the dead. 
In the Old Testament, you might be familiar with Elijah bringing a boy back to life. Jesus himself on three different occasions. Jairus' daughter, the son of a widow, and then his, his good friend Lazarus. He brought all of them back from the dead. So it's not saying that he was the first to be raised from the dead. But instead, that description of first fruits is something found in Leviticus 23.10. It's a description of an expectation for the Israelites. You see, the Israelites being uh, the, the farmers or those trying to raise a crop, there was an expectation described in Leviticus that before they would harvest the entire crop, they were intended to bring the first fruits or the beginning of the harvest to the Levitical priests as an offering, as a demonstration that, that it all goes back to God as the giver of good gifts. And so as a form of an offering. And really what's saying or what's happening is Jesus was the offering, the first fruits of sorts to the Father on behalf of us. And here's the cool thing. It was a sign of the harvest that was to come. So he was the first to be raised from the dead, but not the last. He set the tone, he set the pace, and he explains it further. That what he represents or the sign is the coming harvest is for those who have fallen asleep. Now, what is that referring to? Well, there's a lot of us that enjoy a good nap. He's not talking about somebody dozing off. But instead, he's describing those that have actually passed, the believers that have died before them, Old Testament, New Testament, all of those who are before us, there's actually hope of the resurrection. How does that work? He explains it. He says, as by a man came death, what does that mean? Through Adam and Eve's decision to ignore the uh, direction of God, to go their own way, to partake of the fruit, uh, they actually set the pace for sin and destruction. Instead, we, uh, we're, we inherit a bent towards sin. So one person's decision to reject God's authority then impacted everyone after them. That was something that they all understood living underneath the, the curse of Adam. But here he explains, in the same way that one man's decision impacted all of them, here, one man's resurrection, as he says, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. You see, in the same way that one man brought death, one man, Jesus, brought the resurrection. That's why it says, in Christ, all, all, in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's where th people get a little bit confused by that because that all statement, it's kind of an argument for universalism that everyone will be saved because it does in fact say all. But a key word that's used there, I think it's important for us to catch, in Christ shall all be made alive. The in Christ, the word in is critical there. Those who are in Christ. You see, in history, God has separated mankind into two different camps. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And trust me, you do not want to be in the Adam's family. Sorry, no pun intended. But here's the idea, is we're in designed to be in Christ. You see, we're naturally born into the family of Adam, but we're supernaturally brought into the family of Christ. 
That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, again, the word in, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in Christ, we have hope of a resurrection. Because Jesus not only conquered death for himself, he conquered it for everyone who chooses him, that embraces his finished work on the cross. Every sin, past, present, and future was placed on Jesus on that cruel cross. And if you think about it, sin's fury was spent on Christ's murder. Sin's fury was spent on Christ's murder. But here's the amazing thing. It was like the the best possible uh, attack on Christ ended up taking his life. But when he marched out of that tomb, he had ultimate victory over sin and death. So that, we're told here, we were made alive. No longer do we have to fear death. It's something that has been conquered. So this took place, an event that was critical, a, a, a redirecting event for those, all who placed their trust and hope in Jesus Christ. It was a huge deal. And the question is, well, how does it play out then? What does that look like? And he explains in verse 23. He says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. Then he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When you read that, you're like, well, what's what's happening there? It's a really, actually, it's a really helpful timeline of how this all plays itself out. You see it described there. First, Jesus was raised from the dead and elevated to the right hand of God the Father. Next, what do we see in the text? Next is uh, those who are on Christ. He says, Christ is the first roots, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So a day is coming that when Christ returns, that's what he say, at his coming, then those who belong to Christ will be taken with him. See, Scripture teaches this clearly throughout, that there is a day on the calendar where Christ will return and take us to be present with him. And we don't know exactly when that day is, but it's one that we can look forward to. It's one that gives us hope. It's described in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We don't know when that day is coming, but man, isn't it awesome to think that it could be at any, any moment? I've joked about it before, but I, uh, I think if I joke long enough, maybe it might actually happen. It, it could be now, or it could be now. One of these times I might actually get it. We're going to wait and see. But here's the idea, is that that happens, and then after we're taken, 
he describes that's when the end comes. Well, what does that mean that the end comes? That's where Jesus delivers, we're told here, the kingdom to God the Father. What's been broken, what's been messed up, what's without uh, with, with so many faults and flaws, it doesn't ha- take very, uh, hard, uh, very hard look to see how broken and messed up things are, but it's going to be returned, this kingdom of this earth, returned back to the Father. It's going to be given back to him like a lost wallet returned to its owner. It is coming back. And here's the confusing thing, because sometimes we can look across the horizon of all that's going on in our world, and we can be like, man, it just seems like those who are wicked are flourishing. Those who are dishonest are succeeding. Well, here's what we discover here. Is there a, is a date where that will come to an end? That's not an era that will last forever. He describes it destroying every rule and every authority and power has put all his enemies under his foot. It's amazing for those who are in Christ to know that you chose to be on the right side of eternity. You chose the, the right team in Jesus Christ. The, for, the, for the person that's not in Christ, the person that's in Adam, this is a horrifying reality. That justice is coming, that there will be destruction of those who oppose the king. Here's the thing, is that's a, it, it's, it, it's a reality that, that, is, uh, that we're racing upon that is, describes that what's happening for those who are outside of Jesus's forgiveness, man, that's a, a, a scary reality. There's other things, though, to hope for. It says, and a day is coming where death will be no more. Says here that that's the very last enemy, the crescendo of God's God's ministry, of the completion of what Jesus did on the cross, is death will be no more. I was just thinking about that in my study this week and what a blessing that is, because if there's anything in this life that's most miserable is death. Just hearing the stories of it, of the loss of somebody that's loved, I'll, I'll never forget standing in a hospital room with a couple of family members that were watching their father pass away and seeing him breathe his last breath, seeing the inhale, the exhale, the inhale, the exhale, and then that loud, miserable beep that that machine makes when the heart has flatlined. You see, that is what he's saying will be no more. You see, Jesus' work was the intention of bringing life on the other side. His resurrection just wasn't personal. It was in hopes for us as well. So the question that we have is, well, what, what's holding this up? What keeps all this from happening? Why, do, why, do we keep put, why does God keep putting up with those who oppose him, those who resist him, those who reject him? thinking about that this week as well. And I was reminded of 1 Peter 3, 9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Long and short of it is he's waiting on some of us. 
He's waiting on some of us, some of us that have been resisting him, some of us that have been running from him, some of us that have been ignoring him, some of us that have been trying to pretend as if this decision doesn't exist. My question, and it's an important question for every single person that's listening, is are you the one that he's waiting for? Are you one of the ones that he's waiting for? Is he patiently just saying, oh, I, my, my heart's desire is just that they'd finally bend a knee and embrace me for rescue. It's not, he's not waiting for you to get your act together. He's not waiting for you to stop sinning or to get over some kind of a pattern of sin that you can't seem to defeat. He's saying, when are you gonna come and call out to me? Bend a knee, allow my finished work on the cross to provide you rescue. That is what he's delaying. That's what's causing him to wait and to, put, to actually put everything under his foot and end all of the injustice. Continue, verse 27 says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet, referring to Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. Uh, th that he is accepted, uh, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. We'll stop there for some explanation. Here's a, a interesting article that I was reading this last week by John MacArthur. He suggested something that I hadn't really thought about before, that Jesus rose in order to reign. See, the, the whole intent of this whole process was for him to finish the rescue and then to be elevated appropriately as Philippians 2.9 tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He's taken his rightful place, the place that he was always created to fulfill. Here, the risen Lord, where the risen Lord is above everything. There's some explanation here that uh, where Paul is making sure they understand how the whole Trinity uh, works, where God the Father has put all things in subjection under his feet. I think this is important to understand what he means by under his feet. In that, in that time period, it was common practice for a conquering king to literally put his foot on the neck of the king that he's conquered as a visual demonstration of their subjection under him. So that's the picture that he keeps rehearsing in their minds. The audience would be very familiar with this concept. So Jesus will be elevated above all, but not saying that he would be elevated. He wouldn't be, that God the Father wouldn't be subject to him. It only makes sense. But here's the thing is the idea of submission within the Godhead is often resisted because in our culture, our world, the idea of submission and subjection is always attached to some kind of abuse of leadership. But here in that perfect loving relationship of the Godhead, it's completely natural that all of this has the intent that God may be all in all that God may be all in all. It's beyond our comprehension, understanding what that means, but the intent of everything that Jesus has done is that God would be all in all, 
that the Trinity, the Trinitarian glory that was always intended would come to fruition. That was God's intent and that's God's plan. The design, all of this, the resurrection was moving so that the Son could reign with the Father as was always intended, the initial design. Continue in the text in this last section of verses, verse 29, he makes some really great points. He says, otherwise, if this weren't to happen, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right, what all is Paul trying to get across there? I think it's uh, uh, important to kind of break down this section of understanding. The first thing, verse 29, is actually uh, causes a lot of confusion. There's wide, a wide variety of interpretations of what's talking there. In fact, there's a, a lot of people that use that as a springboard for going all kinds of crazy directions. In fact, just reading some this week about how the Mormon faith concludes that you can be baptized on behalf of someone who's already died in an attempt to rescue them. They have a, a huge ceremony as an opportunity to be able to take somebody that's already died and my baptism is intended to save them. But here's where that breaks down is baptism itself doesn't even save us. Remember the description we give in church of what God's word teaches that is that baptism is an outward expression of an inward decision. It's just a demonstration of what's already taken place. And so that obviously is not the case here. The way I interpret what's being said, what he's the point that he's tr trying to make to the, his audience, he's saying, if there's no life after death, What's up with all the crazy things people do out of concern for the dead? Even pagans accept the idea of life after death. Think about that. He's saying if they'll go to the extreme measures of trying to be baptized, to baptize somebody that's already died because they have hopes of them being rescued for the afterlife, if the pagans even believe and have hope in the afterlife, why would you? as followers of Jesus Christ, not have hope in the resurrection. It's a kind of a, a shocking idea. It's like, if, if they get it, why can't you? He goes on in his next point, verse 30. He says, why are we in danger every hour? What does he mean by that? Basically, he's saying, why would we go through the misery we go through if there's no future hope. Remember, this is a time period where there is, is extreme persecution for those who are following Jesus Christ. So he's saying, if there's no resurrection, why in the world would we go through all of the discomfort and misery that we experience? He's saying, I die every hour. Is that just a, a waste of my time? 
He mentions something kind of a, a most believe is actual, a, a literal example of some of the hardship that he faced. He describes it. He says, I die every day. Uh, he said, what do I gain, humanly speaking? He says, I fought the beasts at Ephesus. Now, what is he talking about fighting the beasts at Ephesus? There's no story of him fighting an animal at Ephesus. But what we do discover is if you spend some time in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19 describes what took place for Paul in Ephesus. There's a, a, a blacksmith by the name of Demetrius that got so bent out of shape trying to oppose Paul that he rallied this huge crowd that was chanting for two hours in opposition of Paul, where Paul finally ended up leaving the city in response. That was most likely the beasts of Ephesus that he's referring to. His point being, why would I go through that? Why would, I, why would I go through all of that if there's no resurrection? What is the point? Why, what do I gain, humanly speaking, is what he's saying. He says, if the dead are not raised, look at his conclusion. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Isaiah 22, 13 is what he's quoting there. This idea and this concept that the culture so often embraces. If there's not life after this, then why not go completely hedonistic? Eat and drink and be merry and partake in as much indulgence as possible. That's the point he's making. He's saying, if there's not a resurrection, if there's not a date on the calendar where Christ is coming back, to take us to be present with him. If there's not life after this, then why not just indulge? But the point is the opposite. He's saying, but there is a resurrection. So you can't go on living as if there's that the accountability of someday the return of Jesus Christ. He points to that. Basically, he's offering the why for their lives. I don't agree with much that Nietzsche said, a famous philosopher, but I do like what he said in this statement. He says, he who has a why to live can endure almost any how. He who has a why to live can endure almost any how. Basically, any hardship or any opposition, you can go through all of that if you have a why to live. And I would suggest, as Paul suggests, is that the resurrection is the why that is needed for the Christian life. Well, why do I go through difficulty? Why do I, why do I go against all of this opposition? Why don't I just follow what everyone else is doing? The reason why is because Jesus Christ was raised and he was the first fruit and those after him will be raised. Some will be raised to judgment and some will be ra raised to eternity with him. That's the reason why. That's our why, if you will. He explains to me, he says, do not be deceived. It seems that they're getting input from bad company. It was contributing to their thinking about the false thinking about the resurrection it's kind of easy if you think about it to be informed by our culture, to law, all the things that the world is saying, hey, just do what feels best. Do what you think is right and do what makes you happy. All of the things, all the messages that misinform us from the culture, he's saying, stop following those who have no knowledge 
of God. Like that description of the world that we're surrounded with. And he tells them, and he's pretty specific and pretty harsh, as I alluded to earlier. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Remember from my late teens uh, being exposed to alcohol and some of the outcomes of that and, and, and just the misery and coming to some of the conclusions that, man, that is not at all what I want my life to be marked by. That's not what I, the experience that I want to have. What he's saying, he's saying, wake up from that drunken stupor. Anybody that's had any degree of alcohol over the level they should understands it doesn't take long for you to be out of sorts for you not to be thinking straight, for things to get cloudy. And here's the idea. He's saying their thinking that's been influenced by the bad folks around them has left them kind of clouded. He's saying, snap out of it. He uses that word. He says, wake up, wake up to the reality of the resurrection and how it impacts everything in our lives. That's my prayer for us that we would live in an awareness, our eyes wide open, us being wide awake to the reality that Jesus Christ died, rose again, provided rescue for all who place their trust in him. There's a day on the calendar that's coming where he's returning, where we will spend eternity with him or separated from him. Our choice is left in what we do with his finished work on the cross. My hope is, is that we would be a people that are wide awake to this. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this text and this reminder, these nudges that Paul not so subtly gives this group of young believers. Sometimes I wonder what it takes to rattle my cages, to get my attention, what he would have to say to get me to to, to, to actually tune in and to listen. God, I pray that this would be a, a message that stirs us a little bit to realize that there's more than the here and now when we're thinking about our interactions with the world around us and how desperate it is for people that don't know Jesus Christ. For us to live in reality in, the, in light of eternity. God, I thank you for your grace, for your mercy. God, we ask in the spirit, even going in the week ahead, that your spirit would lead and direct us of what it looks like to live in light of your resurrection. We need you for this. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.